For the scripture reading this morning, we turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, we read verses 2 through 7. <clears throat> For this Christmas season at Grace, we did a three-sermon series on the names from Isaiah 9, verse 6. If you look at the second half of verse 6, His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We had a three-sermon series. The first sermon looking at those first two names, Wonderful, Counselor. The second sermon looking at those next two names, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. And then on Christmas Day this past Monday, we looked at that last name, the Prince of Peace. The sermon this morning will focus on... uh, those two middle names, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Let's read Isaiah 9, beginning at verse 2. And even just a little bit of a background, um, Judah is in dark circumstances. Judah has a wicked king on the throne, wicked king Ahaz. Judah has uh, the ten tribes of Israel and Syria making an alliance to destroy Judah. And God also gives them the news that the great empire of Assyria will um, march against Judah. So this is a time of warfare, a time when the people of Judah, by and large, are walking in great wickedness and uh, are awaiting God's judgment. Um, But now in Isaiah 9 verse 2, there's a word of comfort that comes for God's people. Who are waiting for their king. Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation, and, and I would take out the word not, and increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian, when God raised up Judge Gideon to bring deliverance to God's people against the Midianites. That's the reference there. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. And that's a challenging verse, but the idea of verse 5 is this. The, the garments of the warrior, the garments that are covered in blood, shall be given over to the fire. They will be burned up and they will be fuel for the fire because there is peace coming. Verse 6, 4. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of peace of the increase of his government and peace 
there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. As I said already, the text is those two names given near the end of verse 6, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, by way of introduction, I want to point out for you the, the order or the structure of these names given to Jesus Christ, because there is uh, an order, there is a, a way in which all these names fit together. First, there is the name Wonderful, which can also be translated simply as wonder. And that word wonderful, or, em or that name wonderful, is emphasizing that Jesus is the wonder of wonders, because he is the great wonder of God come in the flesh. As one commentator put it so nicely, quote, the position of this word as the first in the series is striking. His name shall be called Wonder. We are brought head on, as it were, with God himself as we hear the names of the child. It is our first encounter with him. All the following designations are influenced by or stand under the shadow of this first majestic name. This child who is born for us is wonder. End quote. That's from the commentary of E.J. Young. Right away at the beginning of these titles, we come face to face with the reality that this child that is born, this son that is given, is the incarnate one. God come in the flesh, the Emmanuel, God with us. By the way, that emphasis on who this child is as the incarnate Son of God, God come in the flesh, can already be seen at the very beginning of verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Notice, unto us a child is born. That language is emphasizing his humanity. He is a child who is born, just like we are. But then notice also, unto us a son is given. And what that is emphasizing is that this child is of divine origins. This child is no ordinary child, but this child is a son given by God himself. Truly, this child is God's own son given to us. So this child is the son of man born unto us, and this child is the son of God given to us. Second, there's the name Counselor. And that name Counselor, wonderful Counselor, is emphasizing that this child who will have the government upon his shoulders which means who will have the responsibility of bearing the weight of the government as the king, this child is a child who has all wisdom and knowledge and insight. He is the king who will rule with competency. Think of King Solomon. Remember when Solomon was about to become king and God said, Solomon, give me anything and I will, or ask me anything and I will give it to you. And remember how King Solomon said, Lord, give me wisdom to judge this, thy so great a people. That's what a king needs. He needs wisdom 
or to use this word, he needs counsel. He needs knowledge and understanding to guide, instruct, and lead, and counsel the people under his rule. That's the name counselor. And remember, this is his name. And names here are, are not just labels, but names reveal the very character of the person, especially with regard to God. Wisdom and competency are part of this king's very being and character. His name is counselor. Those are the two names that come before the names we consider this morning. And now, as we come to these next two names, we begin to see how these names fit together. Third, we have the name, the mighty God. And what that name is emphasizing is that this king, who has all the wisdom and knowledge and competency to rule, also has the power and the might and strength to rule. He is the mighty God. That is, he is able to do what needs to be done. He not only knows what needs to be done, but he is able to do it and meet all the needs of his people. And then fourth, we have the name, the Everlasting Father. And what that name is emphasizing is that this son who is given also has the heart and the compassion and love to rule his people well. He has the wisdom, he's counselor, he has the power, he's the mighty God, and now he has the compassion and the heart to rule his people in the most perfect way. And then finally, there's the name, the Prince of Peace, which is really the climax of all these names. This morning, we look at just those two names, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. That's the theme this morning, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. And we look at that theme under three points. First, we look at the name, the mighty God. Second, we look at the name, the everlasting Father. And then very briefly, given to us. First, the name, mighty God. In the Hebrew, the name here is literally El Gibor. Now, we know some of the Hebrew names. Think of the name Jehovah. That's Hebrew for I am that I am. God is the eternally unchanging God of his covenant. Jehovah. We know the name Emmanuel. That's Hebrew. God with us. Maybe some of us know the name El Shaddai. God Almighty. Well, here in Isaiah 9 verse 6, you have another name of God. El Gibor. And it's made up of two words. El, which means God. And in the book of Isaiah, this word El is used only to refer to Jehovah God, not the idol gods of the nations around. And then there's the word Gibor, which means mighty. And when you put these two words together, you have a name that in Scripture is only ever given to God. This is a name unique to God. God is the mighty God. And yet, what's striking is that here in Isaiah 9, verse 6, this child is given that name. That's the name given to Jesus. So clearly, the passage is teaching us that Jesus is God. Jesus is the mighty God. Well, we've already emphasized a little bit who Jesus is as God, who this child is as God in the flesh. So we're not going to focus on that word El, but we're going to emphasize this morning especially that word Gibor, the mighty God. That word mighty is a word that in other versions, is sometimes translated as the word champion or warrior or hero. For example, this word is used to describe Judge Gideon or Judge Jephthah, two men whom God raised up to deliver and rescue his people from their enemies. 
men who are described as mighty men of valor. That's the, that's the word here, gibor, mighty. Interestingly, this word is also used to describe warriors who are very arrogant. Men of war who can puff out their chest and talk proudly. Now that's not the case with Jesus, but the point I want to make is that this word is emphasizing someone who is very mighty. He's a mighty warrior who knows he has great power. He is a champion. He is a hero. Think of one of David's mighty men. The same word is used to describe them, the mighty men of David's army. Think of an athlete who is ready to run his race. He's a mighty man. He's powerful. He's ready to gain the victory. That's the word used here, mighty God. Now, before we apply this word to the child that is mentioned in Isaiah 9, verse 6, let's first see that this word is a word that describes God himself. God himself in Scripture is described as just this kind of a person. He's a mighty man of valor. Think of Psalm 24, verse 8, which is actually a reference also to Jesus and his ascension into heaven, but it's also a reference to God. Psalm 24, verse 8, we read, Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Mighty in warfare. That's the idea. Think of Jeremiah 32. Listen to these words from Jeremiah 32, verses 17 through 19. Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands and recompensest, returnest or rewards the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies is his name. Great in counsel, great in wisdom, and mighty in work. For thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. And there you have a good idea of who God is as the mighty God. He does what he pleases because he is the champion. He is the warrior. Or think of Psalm 2. Maybe you sang it around Christmas time to the tune of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Psalter number 3. Psalm 2 doesn't use the word mighty per se, but the idea of, of this is very well, is very is captured very well for us in Psalm 2. Let me give a few verses from Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And then a little later we read, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's the meaning of this word mighty. El Gabor, the mighty God. 
And now that's a good description of who God is, but now we get back to the text and we see that this is how Jesus is described. This is his name. Jesus is the mighty God. Jesus is the great warrior. Jesus is the great champion. He is the mighty man of valor. He is the great hero. That's what this passage is saying. And if you look at other Old Testament passages, you see that this is a a familiar description of who the Christ child would be. We sang it from Psalm 45 already. Verses 3 through 5. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. That's Psalm 45. Psalm 89, we we also sang it already. Then thou spakest in vision to thy holy one, and saidst, I have laid help upon one that is mighty, Gabor. I have exalted one chosen out of the people. And then the passage goes on to say, And I will beat down his foes before his face, and plague them that hate him. And now to include just one more passage, I can't refrain from giving Isaiah 63, which is remarkable that it's also in the prophecy of Isaiah Listen to these words from Isaiah 63. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. That's the question. Here's the answer. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? Answer, I have trod in the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment, all my clothing. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. See, that's the idea of this title, the mighty God. He is the victorious warrior. He is the proven hero. He is the king who is mighty to save. And now the point of it all is this. Beloved, that's the child who was born unto us in this Christmas season. That's the son who is lying there in the manger in Bethlehem. That little baby Jesus is the mighty God, strong to save. That's who Jesus is. And now you could go through his whole life, you could walk through his whole life, and you could point out how many ways that Jesus showed himself to be the mighty God. You could look at all his miracles, bringing forth life out of death. You could talk about all his preaching, right? They, they said, never man spake like this man. All, all that he did shows his power. But we should get to the point and we should ask, what especially reveals who Jesus is as the mighty one, as the mighty God? I think the answer that we need to fall on is this. What especially reveals his might, his power? The fact that he is able to meet the demands of a broken law. And he is able to make the satisfaction 
for all our sins, and he is able to conquer all his and our enemies and put them to flight. That's who Jesus is as the mighty God. Now, I don't know where this congregation is in your catechism preaching, but back at Grace, we just covered this idea with Lord's Days 5 and 6. Maybe you remember Lord's Days 5 and 6. The question is, why does our mediator need to be fully God? And maybe you catechism students remember the answer. Why does he need to be fully God? Well, because he needs to be so mighty, so mighty, that he, by the power of his Godhead, is able to sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and endure through bearing the punishment. And then not only that, but obtain for his people and restore to his people righteousness and life. That's how powerful he needs to be. And that's exactly who this child is. He's the mighty one who is able to meet the demands of a broken law, who is able to make the payment for sin. And only one who is fully God can do something like that. And not only that, but really in doing that, making the satisfaction for all our sins, he is also able to conquer all his and our enemies. Think of it from that point of view. Think of our mortal enemy, the devil. How, how powerful the devil is, who... who does what he wants with those who are in his kingdom of darkness. And he's a roaring lion. He's a mighty beast. But what does the book of Hebrews tell us? It tells us that Jesus has destroyed the devil. Hebrews chapter 2. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, you and me, he, Jesus, he also himself likewise took part of the same. He became flesh and blood. That through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He is the mighty man of valor who destroys the enemy. Colossians 2 verse 15 puts it this way. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly. He made an open show of how he's conquered his enemies, triumphing over them. That's our mighty warrior. Think of our mortal enemy, sin. Think of how sin so rules and dominates a person so that a person is enslaved to sin apart from God's redeeming work. Think of our mortal enemy of death. And yet what does the apostle write in 1 Corinthians 15? He writes, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The strength, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the mighty one who obtains the victory. And then what else will Jesus do? Not only has he obtained the victory for his people, but also as the, as the righteous and mighty king of his people, he will also avenge all wrongs done to his people. As the book of Romans puts it, Romans 12, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. And what that means is this, step aside, give place unto Jesus and his wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay saith the Lord. 
as the King of glory, Jesus will bring victory to his people. He will rise up against all his and our enemies, and he will make an open show of them. Indeed, already now, by faith, we know, we, we see him sitting on the throne at God's right hand, ruling over all kings and lords, as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we also know, as Scripture tells us, there is coming a day when our King, our mighty God, will mount his horse, his horse which is called Faithful and True. And he will, with his, angel, his army of angels, ride forth through the clouds to the earth. And then we will see him crush his enemies with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces as a potter's vessel. And he will carry out the final judgment as the king, full of wisdom and understanding. And then in his power, he will usher in the new heavens and new earth, where this mighty God will dwell with his people in perfect peace forever and ever, as the prince of peace. But that's the name, the mighty God. Beloved, what a word of comfort this would have been to God's people suffering under the rule of wicked King Ahaz, pining under the rule of a weak, wicked king. How God's people must have been encouraged. Here's the promise of the king who we are looking for, the mighty king, a good and a just king who will be able to save us from all our enemies and save us from this darkness and this sin that we are in. And how they must have lived their lives then, holding to the promises with their eyes fixed ahead, looking by faith for that coming day of the birth of the Savior. What a comfort for us as well. Indeed, a great comfort because not only are we looking ahead by faith with a sure confidence towards his second coming and that, that final victory, but already now, we know that the mighty God has come in the flesh. He has been born unto us, and he has already gotten the victory. Right? He already declared it after the three hours of darkness when he, with a, a loud voice, triumphantly declared, It is finished. The head of the serpent has been crushed. And then he also declared it with his own resurrection from the dead. Death cannot hold him, the grave cannot keep him. He is the victor. He is the king who holds the keys of death and Hades. And what a comfort for us as perhaps we pine under earthly rulers that are wicked or that are weak. And what a comfort for us as we daily battle against our old man of sin and against the sins that beset us. What a comfort for us in the midst of all our circumstances. Beloved, in the midst of your struggles... In the midst of your difficulties and your challenges, remember, you have a king that is the mighty God. You are citizens of a spiritual heavenly kingdom whose king is the mighty God, the mighty man of valor. Remember what God told Abraham in, in Genesis 18. I think maybe some of the catechism students went over this about a month or two ago. Looking at Old Testament history, remember God told Abraham that Abraham was going to have a son. And if you remember, Sarah was listening in on the conversation, and, and Sarah laughed within herself, thinking it would be too wonderful for her at the age of 90 to 
have a son in her old age. And then maybe you remember what God said to Abraham. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And of course we know the answer. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. That doesn't mean that God grants us everything that we ask for, but it does mean in all our circumstances, in all our struggles and sorrows, we are already now more than conquerors because we've got a king sitting on the throne, directing, controlling all things, working it out for the good of his people, bringing them to that expected end, that hoped-for end. And he, he is the king who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask him and even above all that we can imagine. And then living out of him, he's not only sitting on the throne in heaven, but he's also sitting on the throne in our hearts. And we can say just what the apostle says in Philippians chapter 4, I, with Jesus sitting on the throne in my hearts, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My Savior is the mighty God. Yes, my King knows how to lead me. He is the wonderful counselor. But now I also see in this next name, in this passage, that my King is also the one who has the power to get it all done, to get everything done that needs to get done. He is the mighty God. Well, now seeing how great of a warrior and champion this child is who is going to be born unto God's people, we move on to the next name in the text, and we see that this same child, who is the mighty God, the mighty man of valor, is also at the very same time the everlasting father. And that's a most glorious name as well. He is the everlasting father. Now, when you first read that title, it might be a head-scratcher. This son who is given to us of God the Father, is himself called the Everlasting Father? How does that work? Well, there's two things we need to say here. First, just as with all the other names in this text, what this name is emphasizing is that Jesus is God. Now, here with this language, it's not making a confusion between the first person of the Trinity and the second person of the Trinity, God the Father, and God the Son. The passage is not telling us that God the Son is in fact God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. That's not what this passage is teaching. What it is simply saying is this, that Jesus, this child born to us according to his being, that is according to his divine being, is God. He is one with the Father and the Spirit. This Son that is given is, because he's part of the Trinity, because he's the second person come in the flesh, because he's part of the Trinity, he's also fully God. For one more explanation, or, or according to his person, we can say he's the second person of the Trinity, who is eternally begotten of the first person of the Trinity, according to his person, but according to his being, his divine being, he is fully God. And as fully God, he is, with the Father and with the Spirit, the everlasting Father. Now, for one more explanation, think about it this way. When we pray, our Father who art in heaven, remember, we're not just praying there to the first person of the Trinity. 
we are praying there to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The triune God is Father. And the second person of the Trinity, inasmuch as he subsists in the divine nature, inasmuch as he's a partaker of the divine being, he also partakes of that name, Father. So inasmuch as he is God, he is the everlasting Father. That's the first thing we can say. But the second thing we can say is this. What this name is really emphasizing is that this son who is given to us at Christmas time has the disposition of a father. He has the posture of a father towards his people. That's, that's the point here. Meaning, he is the compassionate one. He is the one who pities his people, who loves his people, and who goes to work to provide for his people's needs. As a father pities his children, so Jesus pities and loves his people. That's the idea of this name. Now for me personally, I am rather inclined to think of Jesus as my elder brother. And that's a very biblical idea. I think we think of that oftentimes. Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him, it was fitting for him to be made like unto his brethren. Jesus is our brother. But when you look at Scripture, Scripture also does indicate that Jesus relates to his people also as a father. For example, remember that woman with the issue of blood. And you remember how Jesus addressed her. Right? Jesus is in a crowd of people walking down the road, and someone touches him, and virtue proceeds out of him. And, and he says, who touched me? And he turns around in the crowd, and he looks at this woman, and the woman breaks down in front of him and tells him everything. And how does Jesus speak to her? You remember? He says, daughter, daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. In John 13, verse 33, Jesus addresses his disciples as little children. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Now, that language is the language of a father figure, addressing them as little children. Or think of in Isaiah 53, verse 10, you have very explicit language where believers are referred to as the seed of Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 10. And that makes sense. We are the seed of Jesus in this sense that Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, is, is the one who actually brings us to life again. He regenerates us so that we are born again, spiritually reborn. That's his work by his Spirit. So, so we are the seed of Jesus. Or, or think even just how young Timothy Paul spoke of young Timothy as my son in the faith. And that's who we all are as believers. We are Jesus' children in the faith. But the main point is this. This son who has given us in Isaiah 9, this king who has the responsibility of the government on his shoulders, he will rule us and he will direct us as a father rules his children. Meaning, with love and compassion and pity. Again, think of a good king, a king who lives not for himself, but a king who is serving his country, 
who cares deeply for the citizens of his kingdom. That kind of a king, in a sense, is a father figure. He's jealous over his people. He's protective of them. He wants to provide for them the best that he can give them. And this is the character, this is the disposition of this child in the text towards his people. He is the everlasting father. And what, what adds to the comfort of this title is that this child who has this kind of fatherly affection for us will have this fatherly affection for us forever because his name is the everlasting father. And again, that word can be understood in a few ways. First, it could be understood as emphasizing Jesus' deity, meaning this, he's the eternal father, right? He is the eternal God. Some even take this language and, and translate it as he's the father of eternity. And you could do that and you could unpack rich truths if you would translate it that way. But it would seem better to understand this name or this word as emphasizing that his disposition towards us, his posture towards the citizens of his kingdom, will always be the posture of a father. He will always have a fatherly pity towards us. He will always have a paternal love and compassion for his people. He will always be jealous over his people. He will always be defending them from their enemies and provide them what they need. The relationship of Jesus, this child that is born, this son that is given, his relationship as one who cares for us is not going anywhere. That's the idea. He has had a love and affection for you, his people, from eternity. And he's going to have a love and affection for you, his people, unto eternity. He has loved us with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, he has drawn us to himself. And this love of the king for you is not going anywhere. He's never going to lose you. He's never going to forget you. No, this is his name. This is part of his very identity. He's a father. And he exalts in it. He's jealous over it. He loves being father to the people whom he has begotten again. And what does that fatherly affection look like? Well, one example that came to my mind from the scriptures is the example of David. Maybe you remember David and his love for his son Absalom. Absalom, that, that wicked son who was leading a rebellion and an insurrection against his own father's rule. Absalom, who was trying to manipulate the whole nation to turn against David. Absalom was a wicked man. And yet look at how David mourned his death. We read in 2 Samuel 19, verse 33, And the king was much moved when he heard about Absalom's death. And the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. Really, you can't imagine the kind of love that a father or that a mother has for his or her child. A father, if possible, is willing to lay down his own life for his child. That's a love. That's the love of a father. There's no greater love than that. 
But now turn your gaze towards Jesus, beloved. Because you see, that's exactly the love that Jesus has for us as his beloved children. That's why the everlasting Father became flesh. That's why he was born of the Virgin Mary. Because he loved us so much that with a fatherly affection, he came to the earth. He lived that perfect life of humiliation. He went the way of the cross and he laid down his life for his own on the cross. Jesus doesn't just say, I would die for these people. But Jesus, moved by love, comes to the earth, God in the flesh, and he actually does it. And that fatherly disposition Jesus has is a fatherly disposition he's had from eternity and that he will have unto eternity. He's the everlasting father. How comforting that must have been for God's people under the rule of wicked King Ahaz. In a day and age where if you would study the, the, the context, there was so much cruelty so much oppression, so much taking advantage of others. The love of many was waxing cold. There was no care shown to the needy. How comforting to know you have a father who's caring for you. And how comforting for us. How painful it is when you have earthly fathers who love you. And then you have to say goodbye to them. Because the Lord is taking them to glory through death. And you miss that good father God gives you. Or how painful it is when, when you don't have an earthly father who loves you the way that a child ought to be loved by his father or her father. And, and how good it is to have a father or a father figure who is there ready to give you counsel, who has that wisdom you need to instruct you and give you direction. And how good it is to have a father or a father figure who is, who is there for you, who is mighty to help, who can help you out because he has the might to do it. And how good it is then to have a father who loves you, who, has, who reflects faithfully the love of our heavenly father. And the point of the passage is, that's exactly what you and I have in Jesus Christ as believers. And we will never have to say goodbye to the fatherly love and care of Jesus. He is an everlasting father. That's the comfort of this name. Well, those are just two of the names that are given to us in this passage. The mighty God, El Gabor, and the everlasting father. I want to end the sermon very briefly just emphasizing this final point. The amazing news is this, to reiterate, that child that is born, that son that is given, is given to you and is given to me as those who are hid in Jesus Christ. He who is the mighty God, powerful to save, mighty to crush all his and our enemies, able to deliver us from the darkness of sin and death and misery, he is your mighty God. He is the hero, the champion, the mighty man of valor who rescues and delivers his people and who judges them righteously.
and he who is the everlasting father, who is the one overflowing with compassion and love and tenderness towards his children. He is your everlasting father. He is the one who has begotten you again with the word of truth. He's made you a new creation. He's made you a believer. And you know his fatherly gentleness and care for you. That fatherly care and gentleness of your Savior Jesus Christ is not going anywhere. He is the everlasting Father. What reason for rejoicing, beloved, in this season as we, even this morning, dwell again on the the birth of our Savior and his coming. Let us shout for joy at the wonder of wonders and the, the fullness of our salvation. And then, you know, just as the angels said it, let's, let's have the same attitude. Glory to God. God who dwells in the highest heaven and who does the wonder, the wonder of our salvation. Glory to God in the highest. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we love looking at who Jesus is and what thou hast made him to be for us a mighty God and an everlasting Father, a wonderful Counselor, and the Prince of Peace. Give us more and more to know him as such, to enjoy his rule, to enjoy his wisdom and direction, to enjoy his power, and to enjoy his pity and his compassion and love towards us, and to enjoy the peace that is found in him. Bless this preaching to our hearts and to our lives, that who we are and our whole being might be shaped by it to the glory of thy name. 